1: Can't go back, but if you could go back, where would you go? In college football, of course, I'm Josh Pate. This is the Late Kick Extra Podcast. It is now Tuesday, May 9th, the Year of Our Lord 2023. I'm actually on the road right now. Because you could be wherever you want to listening. I'm happy you are. Please just subscribe to the podcast. That is all we ask. And I ask you, where would you go? Got an interesting question to lead off the mailbag here if you want to submit. You can always do it at Late Kick Josh on Twitter, at Late Kick Josh on Instagram. Open your mind, lean back. If it's safe, close your eyes and allow yourself to travel back in time. Answer this along with me. A CFB community from Edmond, Oklahoma asked If you could go back and relive or experience in person for the first time one moment in college football history, which moment would you choose? I didn't go back. I guess I did go back a little ways. It's almost 20 years ago now still feels a little more recent than that. I would want to go back to that 05 National Championship game, the Rose Bowl, Vince Young in Texas, Matt Leinart and USC, and I would want to see that thing. I would want to be one of like 4,000 people. It felt like we on the sidelines. Far less security on the sidelines in those days. I would want to see that. I've experienced it on TV. I know the I know the Keith Jackson call, and I know all the drama that led up to what it was like having it come through my TV screen, but I don't know what it was like in person. And a lot of people think, you know, some people think in a way college football peaked that night, like in the pro wrestling world, people think pro wrestling peaked with Austin Rock at WrestleMania 17. People look at college football and they say, this night right here, in a lot of ways, it would never get better than it got on that night. You never know when those moments are happening until long after the fact. But I'd love to see that one, and I would also, I would love to, I don't know if you can do this, I don't know what the rules are for going back in time, I would love to go back to that Rose Bowl, and I would love to see Vince Young in Texas, and I would love to see Matt Leinert in USC, Reggie Bush, by the way, on that team too, and I would also love to view it through the prism of kind of knowing what the future held, because what you couldn't know is what technology was about to do. you're, You're thinking about the teams, right? You're thinking about, wow, you could have seen that Vince Young run to the corner of the end zone, you could have seen that back and forth affair. Yeah, yeah, all that's good. All that's baked in. Yes, that's why I'm choosing this game. I mean, Texas had 556 total yards. USC had 574 and lost because of that critical two in the turnover column. But I'm speaking about technology because of this. You know how, you know how worked up I get sometimes if you listen to or you watch the show. You know how worked up I get about the atmosphere at live events these days, not just college football, live events in general. Technology has done some great things, wonderful things. I use my phone constantly, so I am not the kind of person who gets on people for always being on their phone. However, at sporting events, I do think that the possession of smartphones, the modern-day cell phone, has been very detrimental to the overall atmosphere because if you are recording things, you're probably not making noise. You're certainly not immersed in or lost in the moment. And that was not the case back then. The reason I go back to the 05 Rose Bowl is, uh, aside from just making the argument, hey, maybe it's the best championship game of all time. Maybe it's, it's the best moment in the history of college football. I could listen to all that. I would add, it was the last great moment in the pre-smartphone era. Cause not too long after that, we were about to advance to the point where cell phone video was good enough that people started recording video in stadiums. And so every big moment, if the Vince Young moment, for example, were to happen modern day, you wouldn't be looking at a bunch of people's hands in the air. And you wouldn't be looking at a bunch of flash bolts from cameras going off. You would be looking at a bunch of phones up in the air. Cause you know that if you go to any live event if you watch it on TV, that's what a crowd looks like now. And it's, it is what it is. You pay your money for your ticket. You, you reserve the right to do whatever you want to, as long as you don't like, hamper anyone else or put anyone else's uh, safety in jeopardy. But that doesn't mean it makes for the best environment. And so I, I always look back at those moments. You could go to baseball. Uh, I, like I said, pro wrestling. You could look at a concert. Or you could look at college football. And I always look at that moment. A period of time, like early to mid 2000s, the great moments that happened then, they have greatness attached to them, but they also have the added hallmark of being some of the last great moments in the pre-smartphone era. And for all the great things that those smartphones have done, like I said, I use mine daily. I really would like to go back to a time where when people went into sporting events or concerts or whatnot, they just kind of... They just kind of suspended themselves, and they left the phone in the back pocket, and they just got lost in the moment, and everybody is just full throat on third down, on fourth down, and they're totally lost in the game. Instead of sitting in section 248, worried about whether you're going to get video that's going to suck, and no one cares about it, because you could just go home and watch the broadcast feed anyway, and they got a lot better view than you did, but I get it. I get it. It's a classic situation where we have to wrap it with the phrase, it is what it is. This podcast is what it is uh, because of you. How nice, how nice of me to work that in there. Uh, Where are we going to go next? Is this the place they make the water? Do we know? Trey hit us up from Deer Park, Texas. What do I, I just got good old fashioned public spring water on the desk with me this morning. So Trey from Deer Park, Texas hit us up and said, Chris Kleiman's new deal at K-State is for eight years, $44 million for a coach that just won the Big 12. Looking ahead, is there any chance the Big 12 and the ACC can prevent their coaches from being farmed out to the SEC and Big 10, considering the discrepancy in TV money? This is a valid concern. So there's a point you get to where, no, you can't control the SEC or the Big Ten, really coming in. If they wanted to just egregiously spend, if, for example, Iowa really wanted Kansas State's coach, and I'm just picking two random teams, they could do it. But the thing to pay attention to here is not how much money are they making, how wealthy are they, how deep are their pockets. The thing to pay attention to is market value. What they could do is not directly go and snipe your coach. What they could do is they could contribute to a situation where the market values get driven up into the 10, 12, $14 million a year range for a coach, which sounds crazy, but so did eight or $9 million a year a decade ago. So if that were to continue on that upward trend, that's when you start to get to the point where the big 12 schools or the PAC 12 schools or maybe the ACC schools, that's when they can't compete as much. Now here's the great unknown. The great unknown is how much... How much further are coaching salaries going to go? How much higher are they going to climb? Or are we looking at kind of a coaching bubble, coaching salary bubble, to where we get to a point where the, the best out there are making like 10 million a year, kind of like they are now. But then we sort, of, we sort of come back down off that bubble to a, a six, seven, eight million a year. And what could contribute to that? Well, a reallocation of funding towards NIL is what could contribute to that. It used to be you just put all your money in your coaching salaries and your facilities. Well, nowadays you can pay players. And so you can put a lot of money in that and maybe coaches don't make as much. Short of that, I don't see any reason why coaching salaries don't continue to increase. And if they continue to increase, yeah, you could find yourself squeezed out. But it's not just dollars to dollars. You have to understand something. Good for Kansas State, by the way, for extending Chris Kleiman. But if we came into a situation where Alabama's job was open or Florida's job is open and they come after Chris Kleinman and they offer him. It's not just, hey, Kansas State is paying you whatever they're paying him, $5 million a year, whatever. And we could pay you six. And Kansas State says, okay, we'll match six. It's not just, can you match them? You've got to understand the, the added exposure you get when you go to one of those premier schools in the big two conferences. Uh, the more direct access to talent pipelines, the better facilities, uh, the higher profile games on bigger TV networks and more prime spots. You open yourself up to so much more that in reality, if it is truly just a bidding war, the Kansas states of the world don't just have to match it, they have to exceed the offer because there's so much added baked in value that's maybe non-monetary when you go to a Big Ten school or an SEC school. So that's uh, a long-winded way of saying, there's a reason why people like me have continued to be concerned about a Big Two pulling away from or breaking away from, for all intents and purposes, uh, conferences like the Big 12 or the Pac-12 or the ACC. And it's because you can't hang. Really, unless there's a, unless there's a hometown factor, unless there's a hometown discount, which just means if i coach at kansas and i love kansas i may be willing to stay there even if the on paper it doesn't look like i should stay here outside of that you're going to lose out more times than not on those propositions it's not just players you know in the portal era and recruiting has always been this way it's not just that you lose out to georgia when you're recruiting the big time players it's not just that your good players transfer to georgia your coaches assistants and head coaches could, uh, be in the same boat. So it's a valid concern. Next up, a question I've gotten a lot lately. That's why I decided to throw it in here today. Levi from Knoxville, Tennessee. What do you think he asked? He asked, why the lack of coverage for Tennessee? I'm not mad. I've just found it odd. All right. So this happened to us last year. So Levi's actually right. We have not had enough Tennessee in the show. I'm just admitting that. And Colin backs me up on this. So Last year, there was a very weird thing that happened. We just kind of lost track of it. So Georgia wins the national title last year. First time they've won one in like 40 years, I think it was. So I'm from Georgia too. So there there are all the elements in the room that make you think we're about to talk about Georgia nonstop over the spring. I was so aware of that, that we actually talked less about Georgia than we should because I had it in my mind that like any time we talked about Georgia, it was overkill. Even though if you just looked at the numbers, we actually had not done that at all. So then I get to the fall and the Georgia folks are saying, wow, you ignored us all spring, all summer. And I'm like, no, we haven't. But then you go back and look at the numbers and we kind of had. We're doing it with Tennessee right now. Fortunately, it's only May. So we have realized and hopefully will address the error of our ways. But Levi, it is odd. And the reason is because Tennessee flashed on the radar nationally last year. Talked about them a lot during the season, obviously. We are in the state of Tennessee, so we're disproportionately more likely to talk about Tennessee. You would just you would think. It's not, it's not a Tennessee show like, or anything like that, but you would just think we're, we're geographically two hours away from Knoxville. You would think maybe we'd be more prone to it. Well, that, that kind of thing has baked into my subconscious mind, and so over the past month and a half, if the idea of talking about Tennessee has popped in my mind, I've said, eh, we better not tonight. Eh, let's, let's put Oregon State in there instead. Well, they're going to think we're talking too much about Tennessee. And then all of a sudden you come to find out, wow, we haven't mentioned Tennessee in like a month and a half. So my vow to you, Levi, we will rectify this. And we will rectify this in short order. Thank you for your concern. Sometimes when you guys complain, you're actually right. Uh, next up, let's go to... Joseph in Olive Branch, Mississippi, he asks an interesting question. It's getting to be that time of year. He said, will preview magazines become obsolete with the transfer portal causing so much movement? I've always loved them, but I'm scared that I won't be able to rely on them at all from now on. Well, interesting time right now. So what we just came out of is a transfer portal window. We didn't have that until very recently. We didn't have that. So there was a couple of years there where we had the transfer portal, but you could just move whenever you wanted to, that wreaked havoc. On the preview magazine culture, that wreaked havoc. The biggest blessing that could be afforded to them was when the, whatever that council is that passes all the rules, when they announced that there was going to be a spring window. There were two transfer portal windows, basically. And the last one is through mid-May. And then it closes. And then largely... You, like right now, in other words, we know 98% of the rosters. And from this point on, nothing could change that couldn't always have changed before. Like a guy could quit, a guy could get kicked out of school, a guy could suffer a season-ending injury in summer workouts, but that stuff was always a risk. Now the preview magazine culture sort of has their feet back under them. Like they got knocked down for an eight count, but they got back up and so I was looking at Phil Steele earlier today on Twitter. He was showing some of the work they still have to do. He said, right, right at a month from today, we're going to send our, our last copies off to be printed. I've still got to talk to coaches. We've still got to go over rosters. But at least they know. Like, at least there's a timetable now where they know the window's closed so we can, we can get after it. Uh, but as for preview magazines, look, I, I recommend this. I recommend buying them all. I'm not anti-preview magazine. What I think you should do if you, if you really want to be totally immersed in college football and you want to equip yourself, whether you just want to be a, the smartest fan you could be, whether you want to make money betting the sport, is I would buy all of them and I would use them as, as tools, as reference points. That's what I do. I still go buy them and I don't really lean on them. Like the question was, I don't know if I can rely on them. Well, I've never relied on preview magazines. I think they're good to have as a roster reference. There's some good stories in there. And yeah, you could get a general feel. It's kind of like the mood tracker. I use the preview magazines the same way that I would think of the mood tracker when we do it on Late Kick. When I read the, let's use Tennessee, when I use the preview magazine to get the Tennessee preview, that's just kind of the mood tracker of the national media instead of the fan base as it relates to Tennessee it may be way off the mark it may be right on the money but it helps me to gauge what the rest of the the general college football public is thinking about a team then what i want to ask is do i sound exactly like these preview magazines and if the answer is yes sometimes that's not a good thing because rarely does the college football public consensus nail a team in the preseason most of the time if everyone's singing the same chorus You want to be a little off-key. It's okay. It's okay to sound different. It's okay to stand out. Because that ends up making you look foolish in August. But as Mima always said, an August fool is a December genius. What a quote Mima just dropped on the show, by the way. Wow, that's fortune cookie stuff. That is bumper sticker stuff. An August fool can be a December genius. We don't want to be geniuses in August. We can be laughed at. Persecute us all you want to in August. See us in December. So yeah, preview magazines, they're not going anywhere. They got a nice little rebound, a little reprieve from this transfer portal window. I think they'll be fine. All's well that ends well. What's your favorite one though? You know, my other, my other piece of advice is when you, when you get those preview magazines, read them, but then make sure you're keeping up to date. Like watch, watch and listen to podcasts or shows like ours. Uh, go to 247sports.com. L- listen to as much as you can. Even people you don't like, maybe that's me, but maybe you don't like me. Listen to as much as you can, just to form, just to form as, as well-rounded an opinion and a view of college football as you possibly can. Okay, now we can move on. League City, Texas is where Edley hit us up from. He said, what, what would a successful season look like in College Station, given previous year's preseason expectations and obvious failure? I guess we could all agree that Texas A&M failed last year. Miserably, fantastically, spectacularly. Okay, that's enough. I got a lot of friends. I got a lot of friends around the Aggie program who comment on everything we say about Texas A&M. So I, I always have this little smile on my face because I know they're listening, and I know I'm going to get feedback. I should just start mentioning them by name. So, what's reasonable? If you go five and seven, what is reasonable? Well, there's no easy way to answer that. Because you have to know the conditions. You have to know the details. Why did you go five and seven? Well, if you went five and seven because your roster's terrible, well then we have to ask ourselves, did you upgrade the roster? That is not why A&M went five and seven. They went five and seven despite having a really talented roster. Need I remind you, offensively last year, they were 101st in points per game. Uh, they, were, they were 75th or worse in every major offensive statistical category. So what's reasonable? What would be successful this year? Well, here's what I'm not going to do with them. I'm not going to dumb down expectations. I'm not going to water down expectation level just because you sucked last year. So if Texas A&M had this team they have this year, but they had gone eight and five last year, everyone would expect 10 wins. They have the same team this year that they just had in that scenario I gave you. I am not going to sit here and say seven or eight wins is successful just because they went five and seven last year. Because the fact is you shouldn't have gone five and seven last year. So you need to be up there in that nine or 10 win range. That's where you should be. That's where Texas A&M should be uh, over a half decade into Jimbo Fisher's tenure there. They've got one of the best talent rosters in the country. They just went and got Bobby Petrino as offensive coordinator. So they made the change at coordinator they needed to make. You're you're not void of talent out there. You're well positioned. They are the fourth best odds favorite, I guess, to win the SEC championship right there with Tennessee. Did you know that? Do you know know A&M and Tennessee have the same odds to win the SEC? That That is Las Vegas odds makers telling you, hey, we don't care about last year either. We have to take seriously this talent roster. We can't water down their expectations because of last year. And I don't think that you should either if you're a Texas A&M fan. So success, what it would look like to me is nine wins, be competitive in every game. Bama has to come to your place this year, by the way. And also success would look like a much more healthy, functioning offense, a much more consistent offense week to week instead of this this thing that we saw last year, Um, that no infighting. Uh, no rumors of Jimbo Fisher not being able to relinquish control of the offense. No November drama of Bobby Petrino's exit after one year just being a formality now. We don't need to be hearing any of that. That's failure. Success would be the opposite. Success is come week four, Auburn's coming into town to open conference play, and we're looking and we're seeing that they've already beaten New Mexico. They went on the road and beat Miami. They beat UL Monroe, and here we go. We're about to dive into conference play. They've got Auburn at home. They go up to Dallas to play Arkansas. Then they get Bama at home. That could be a nice little stretch there if everything's functioning the right way. If it's not functioning the right way, there are really four losable games. There are five losable games before their bye week. You, You see quickly? This is the SEC. So every schedule is like this, except Georgia. Uh, But you see quickly how things could turn, how the, how the seesaw, the pendulum, whatever you want to use could swing violently one way or the other. If it, if it does go sideways, like if they have two or more losses by the time they get to that bye week, bad times, bad times ahead. Now they could rebound and go undefeated down the stretch. So it's, it's not like everything's out the window, but you asked me what success looks like. They need to win nine or 10 games. That's what success looks like. And, and it needs to coincide with the offense looking really good. We need to be watching a and this year saying, wow, that offense is night and day different from years past. Maybe that, was the only, maybe that was the only fix that was needed with this program. Sometimes that's all it takes. Next up. Good question here. Very good question. I've got strong feelings on this. Uh, from Cleveland, Tennessee... Backyard Garner asked, Miami's attendance numbers, is that indicative of fans, the program, or just recent teams being bad? I think that it's probably a combination of a lot of those things, but I think that also you have to go back in time a little ways to understand really what the situation is at Miami. So back in the day, you need to be a little bit older to, to have lived this. I mean, I didn't really even live much of this era, but back in the day, kids, the orange bowl was not a bowl game. The orange bowl was the stadium that Miami played in. And it, it was a very, very intimidating, menacing, grimy, dirty environment, but it was theirs. And the Orange Bowl, obviously, is where some of the great Hurricane teams played, too. So you could have played them in a parking lot. And it would not have been a fun experience for you. But the Orange Bowl had a mystique about it. Like the Orange Bowl, when you said, we're playing in the Orange Bowl, you knew you had your work cut out for you. It, it emanated a certain vibe in you. Like you, you knew that was going to be a very, very tense atmosphere. Now what do they say? We're going to play at Hard Rock Stadium which is who knows how many minutes away from campus. It's just out kind of in the middle of nowhere. I mean, I've been there for bowl games. Uh, it, it, it's a pro stadium, just another pro stadium. It's not their fault per se. I am not even wise as to why they had to make that move and, and why Miami had to move out of the Orange Bowl. They tore the Orange Bowl down, uh, probably because it couldn't pass code, I guess. But ever since that happened, there, there's been a difference down there in Vibe, and, and you, you're right, the teams have not been great. But man, I would, I would argue that when they took Miami out of the Orange Bowl, they took a lot out of Miami. They may have taken the team out of the Orange Bowl, but taking the Orange Bowl from Miami took a lot more from them than removing them did for a venue. Because a venue is just, just brick and stone, uh, which, which is a stone. Brick and mortar, there you go. Um, So that's one thing. The fans, it's a really, really interesting dynamic there. You can't tell me that Miami fans won't show up because I've seen them show up before. I just think that when you, you're doing such a disservice when you're asking fans to go to like Hard Rock Stadium versus asking them to go to Tiger Stadium at LSU, Neyland Stadium at Tennessee, uh, Memorial Stadium in Oklahoma. And it's not anything that's within their control. That's, that's kind of the point I'm making. So if you're Mario Cristobal, y- you could agree with everything I'm saying right now and say, but oh well, we can't do anything about that. So what we have to do is just control what we can control. I think also when they, when they get good again, if Miami were to rebound and they're putting up you know, the kind of performance that you had seen in a generation prior, they could fill that place up again. There was a little period of time. I mean, they played... I think it was Notre Dame they played down there one year and they just smoked them. I think it was Mark Richt in Miami. They just smoked Notre Dame. And then everybody thought Miami was back because that's the one of the things you have to go through. Anytime Miami shows a pulse, it's when tech, here's, oh, this aggravates me. I should have thought about this before. When Texas wins a game, everyone says, is Texas back? When Miami wins a game, I have to go through the insufferable Monday narrative of listening to middle-aged sports writers ask, is the swagger back at Miami? Do they have the swagger back? Sir, sir, you came from Sheboygan, Wisconsin. Could you please define swagger for me? And pull up your suspenders before you do it. Mm-hmm. But anyway, if that were to happen, if, if the swagger were to come back, they'd fill that place up, and I'm sure it would be a great atmosphere. But you will never convince me that Miami can fully recreate what they had at the Orange Bowl. You will never convince me of that. And, and here's the downside. It's not coming back. I've seen some of the proposals they have down there to build a new, a new stadium, and that's all well and good. It would be great. It would be preferable over what they have now. I don't know what it is. Something about new stadiums in the NFL, I love. Something about new stadiums in college football, I don't like. I prefer old venues because it really rubs up against the older aspects of tradition and nostalgia and whatnot about college football that I love. I, I I don't really like new venues for college football. Does that make me weird? I don't know. But I don't like them. So there are some things that aren't new. This, for example.
0: eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw The Potential?
1: Got him, got him, got him. Solid nine and a half from the control room, by the way, on the surprise ad toss there. Let's dive back into the mailbag. Totally Compton, who hails from Atlanta, Georgia, go figure, asks, how long does it take to put together a late kick show? Just curious, smiley face emoji. Well, it takes a little while. Very interesting answer here. It takes a long time, but it can be done kinda quickly if you just never stop your preparation if you're just always immersed in college football, like what'll happen is you, you have to know, you, you have to have a working baseline knowledge of the sport, which everyone listening to this does. So in a way, you're, you all are qualified so far. Then you have to understand what the audience wants to hear. And if you had access to analytics and metrics, it's not that difficult to obtain that information. Then you have to know how to stack a show. It takes a little experience, but, but you can pretty much nail it down. But here's what happens. You have to be able to know that, hey, we want to do a few minutes on this thing. Like we're going to ask a question in a little while about LSU. So if someone were to come to me and say, hey, we need to do a, I think we should do a segment tonight on people doubting Brian Kelly and LSU. Well, I could put that together in my mind. I I, I ad-lib most of the segments anyway. With some help from Jesse, he'll throw in some numbers that back up a point I want to make. But that only can happen if you just eat, sleep, and breathe this stuff year round. If you don't, then you have to go look up things and put bullet points on a piece of paper and that gets old. So in a sense, we can put together the show in a few hours, but to do the kind of show we do, if we just started from scratch every time, that's a multi-day process. So fortunately, this company allows us to just do what we do. Therefore, I don't have to go talk about horse racing or the NBA or anything else. I just get to live in the world of college football. And as a result... We can put together pretty in-depth shows, long form shows, and and we can do that multiple times a week. So I guess the answer is it takes a long time, but not a long time. I hope I haven't been unclear there. Next question. Brad from Jacksonville, Florida. Why do we think LSU is so good? They barely beat Auburn and Arkansas. They got handled by a mediocre Texas A&M team to end the regular season. This is what we call a classic Recalibration of expectations special. Last year, we were going into the season this time of year. Everyone thought LSU was going to struggle. The over under win total was in the six or six and a half range. So then they started to win. And so people, like, for example, Brad, they forgot about that. They forgot about the starting point. And all of a sudden, they looked back and they start holding LSU to this different standard at the end of the year. LSU had very average expectations. Well, all of a sudden they exceed the expectations and then you want to hold them to a different standard. LSU should not be held to a 10 win standard in year one. What you should be doing is you should be looking at it and saying, uh, how seriously should I be taking LSU because because they accomplished all this? You're talking about, oh, they they won close against these teams. They should have been losing those games. They had a first year coach. History says they're supposed to be losing those games. So they won them and they beat Alabama. And we're sitting here saying, why should we take them seriously? Well, I'll tell you why I take them seriously. That little year one performance, that little year one stunt they pulled off, screams to me, they may be ahead of schedule. And number two, they have recruited a top 10 class. They've recruited a top 10 portal class. They've got a really good quarterback room, and they're very sure of where they're headed. I don't have to look at Brian Kelly, in other words, and wonder whether he can duplicate what he did in year one. Did they just catch lightning in a bottle? No, no. He's not 32 years old. He's not a rookie head coach. His process is proven. It's going to continue to bear out results that you like down there. They, they had come off back-to-back years where they were sub 500. And all of a sudden they go ten and four and they they win the West out of nowhere. So you can either look at that one of two ways. You can say, who cares? They got smoked by Georgia in Atlanta, or you can say, Wow, LSU made it to Atlanta in year one. The latter is the attitude that's logical. The former, that's the recalibration of expectation. That's like if I walk in the gym and you bet me that I can't bench 225 and then all of a sudden I warm up with 275 and I tell you I think I'm going to go for 315 today and I put 315 on the bar and I I get it down and I start to push it up then it gets a little sideways and oh I need help spotter spotter racket you could either say wow I was so off on guessing 225 or you could say bro you couldn't even get 315 like what makes more sense really What? Who who should be criticized more in that scenario? Me or you? So I think LSU is going to be really good this year. I think that they obviously play in the biggest week one game in the country. Are people ready, by the way? Are people prepared for LSU versus Florida State to be a top 10 matchup? Because that's absolutely going to be the case. Are we ready for that? Are you ready to go into that bye week in late October and have that that LSU at Alabama game be just monstrous like it like it had been throughout most of the decade of the 20-teens? Are we ready to see a visiting Texas A&M come into Death Valley, maybe with Jimbo Fisher having resurrected Texas A&M's chances, and so that game has just premier importance placed on it? Are we ready? LSU also plays Army this year, just out of nowhere, so there's that. I... I I don't know why you wouldn't think LSU is good. I don't know why you wouldn't. I think you're setting yourself up for heartbreak if you think that team's about to fall off or they shouldn't be taken all that seriously. Next up. We have a question that I had to ponder a little while. This is uh, this is one from one of our buddies, Alex, up in Pennsylvania. He said, what is one part of storm-chasing culture that would just shock the listening audience? If you're new, I... I chase storms, love chasing tornadoes, seen three of them already this year. There's a safe way to do it and a dumb way to do it. And there are people who traffic in both. What would shock you? Well, that's a good question. So if you ever go back and watch the movie Twister and you know that they have the, the evil storm chasing team that they're competing against, you may think to yourself, oh, that's Hollywood. And it is, it is absolutely Hollywood. But what if I told you that within the storm chasing community, there are little, little squabbles and dramas, mainly played out on the internet, of course, that happen every day. So this is a true story. Last night, I'm recording this on Monday. So last night, Sunday night, we're doing Late Kick Live. Had we not had a show on Sunday night, I would have been up in Iowa because we had a, had a pretty decent little tornado outbreak up there. And I would have been with my storm chasing team that I like to tag along with. Vortex Chasing, if you want to follow along. So I'm not with them. They get in a wreck in Iowa. Uh, The footage is pretty rough. And the car may be totaled. And so no one died. Injuries, but no one died. So I sit there and ask myself, man, would I have been in that car? Would that have happened? Blah, blah, blah. But then, that's not what would shock you. Car wrecks happen. What would shock you is, last night, there's this fool that is part of the, what I would call the more Jonas sector of the storm chasing community. If you know, you know, and he starts to mouth off. You ever meet these people? They exist in college football too. These people who just, they want to say something so profound, but they are not dynamic speakers. Uh, No one really cares about what they have to say, but they want to say something profound. And so any little thing that happens is this crisis that needs a big statement. Well, last night, one of these clowns decides that he's going to take it upon himself to watch that footage, not knowing anything about anything, not even knowing if anyone's okay or not, and say he's going to use it to, to make a big overarching statement about how chasers are driving too dangerously. Never mind the fact that the dude who got hit was hit by someone who ran a red light who wasn't a storm chaser. Never mind any of that. So we do, in the storm chasing community, have our Bill Paxton's and we've got our Jonas Millers. We've got our night crawlers. And you may not think that. You may just think everyone's out there on the same team. You may think everyone's in it for team science, not team money. Some people are just in it for team clout. You think you're out there chasing the tornado and some folks are just out there chasing that clout. And we had, we had some EF5 clout being chased the other night. And this is not an atmospheric science podcast, or I would go deeper on this immunity, but I'm going to, I'm going to swerve the car back. I'm going to swerve that red Dodge, which I've got liability coverage only on. I'm going to swerve it right back onto the highway here through the cornfield, mind you. And again, if you haven't seen Twister, 70% of those references don't make sense to you, but I think the main point was still delivered. Cole Kublick's calling me right now. Uh, Cole has made it his mission to just call me when I'm on air. And not only has he perfected the art of calling me while we're live, he even now knows how to call me when we're recording. I don't know how that's possible, but but he accomplishes it. So congratulations, Cole. Sent to voicemail again. Uh, Thomas from Warrior Alabama. If you could pick a week eight game to go to right now, which one would you pick? Thomas, how did you know I was looking at this earlier? I mean, I was just looking at this yesterday. So three of the big games this year happened in week eight. We got Penn State at Ohio State. You think that's a no-brainer. You got to go to that one. Well, we also have Tennessee at Alabama. And you got Utah at USC. I am Pac-12 paid after all. So I I have to give a lot of attention to what's happening on the West Coast. Look, I'm just going to say it. Penn State at Ohio State is the one I would pick right now. And you think that's crazy. But here's the problem. When we're formatting the tour, the fall tour, which has still not been named, I'm still taking name suggestions. When we format the fall tour, you got to remember, yes, we're trying to pick the biggest game, we want to see the best game every week, but we also we want to get to as many places as we can. So Tennessee plays at Bama this year. You can't just look at week 8 in a vacuum. Tennessee plays at Alabama. So does LSU. So does Texas. And I'm almost sure we'll be at that Texas-Bama game. So what you run the risk of, if you want to call this a risk, it's a very first-world risk, you run the risk of going to like three games at Alabama. And if that's the way it works out, that's the way it works out. But if it's even close in Week 8, and we've already been to Bama at least once that year, we'll probably go to Penn State-Ohio State. And especially if it's big noon kickoff, we would want to go up there. Because then I could get home. Or there is a chance, there is a chance that Penn State, Ohio State is big noon kickoff. That's 11 a.m. Central. And then maybe, just maybe, our overlords at CBS choose to make Tennessee, Alabama the night game. At which point we put out the bat signal to the audience and we get our private pilots. And I know many of you listen to the show. Maybe that's the day we do the two for one. Maybe we fly from Columbus down to Tuscaloosa. Whomst amongst us knows how the future will play out. Always a fun exercise. Truthfully, that's how I get myself through summer. I just hypothetically work out our, our tour um, on, the, on the fall schedule, and then it never pans out. It never pans out how you expect it to, but I try nonetheless. Uh, let's go next up. Let's go to Rehan in Old Town, Florida. Would you ever consider doing a late kick show on a Saturday wherever the destination is for the tour like a college game day type thing? We've talked about this. It's not in the cards only because I don't I think the market is so saturated on Saturday morning. Everyone does stuff on Saturday morning. And truthfully, I like getting to the venue, getting to the games we're at, and I like being like around teams. I like um being on the field for warmups, especially if you're at an early game, like you can gather some information that way. You can talk to a lot of people off the record that way that that ends up contributing to what I can put in the show. There's nothing more to be gained by doing a Saturday morning show. Game day only does Saturday morning. So you have not heard from Kirk Herbstreet or Desmond Howard or Lee Corso or whoever else they have on the show, David Pollock, Pat McAfee, you have not heard from those guys all week so it makes sense that they're going to present their product on Saturday morning leading into kickoff. You've already heard me Sunday, Tuesday, and Thursday night. Why would we need to talk about anything else Saturday morning? What we have considered is doing something on Friday night specific to the market we're in. So if we're in Norman, Oklahoma, you know maybe there's a, maybe there's a restaurant out there, a business, or what have you, and maybe we coordinate with them, and maybe we have an, a situation where we have like 50 of our audience members. We create this intimate setting and we sort of do what we're doing right now, but it's off the record. It's maybe not recorded. So anything goes, it's, it's question and answer, it's interactive. You leave your cell phone at the door and then we can really talk about some things because if it's off the record, it's off the record, right? And I know none of you would ever walk away from those functions and repeat anything I say. We've talked about that. We'll see. I think we're going to do some stuff on Friday night this fall. We'll see uh, how much we can do. Junior Director Bradley, Bradley the Associate, do we have anything more in there or is that, is that the last thing? That is all. Wow, you actually used the voice of God function there. Okay, well, that is a wrap for us today. Hey, look, one, one favor before you leave. Oh, I think I caught you in time. One quick favor. Just subscribe to the podcast. And let me tell you why. Because it's free and that is how management looks and sees that our show is continuing to grow. We cannot expect management to actually listen to the whole thing. Half the time, we don't want them to because we are trashing management inside this very podcast. And I certainly feel safe saying that because even if they do listen, there's no way they're making it to the end. Let's be real. But if you're subscribing, that's what they see. They kind of they rub the side of their handlebar mustache and they say, oh, good work. And that is how we thrive around here. So make sure you are subscribed. Uh, That's about it. That's all I need from you. Following on the socials, at Late Kick Josh. Until Thursday night, we'll have Late Kick Live Thursday night. Until then, for Bradley the Associate, for Producer Jesse, for Director Colin, I'm Josh Bate. Take care. Have a great rest of your day. And God bless.